Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Continuing our effort to chat with research scientists focused on pheasants, on quail, and on upland habitat. And as a reminder, we've, we've talked with Dwayne and Leslie Elmore, Mark McConnell, James Martin, and most recently, Adam Janke at Iowa State University. I'm excited to go back to school once again, and I'm getting a ton of positive feedback from listeners on these science-based um, conversations with, with biologists and professors from around the country. Um, we're going back to school all the way up to the University of North Dakota for this episode with Dr. Susan Feligi. Dr. Feligi, and I'm, I'm pronouncing it correctly, right? Correct. All right. Uh, Dr. Feligi is a professor at uh, UND, and our Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience may recognize her name as the newest member of our National Board of Directors. Um, Susan is a professor of biology focused on wildlife ecology and management. She studied at Penn State, University of Georgia, and spent some time at Tall Timbers Research Station focused on Bob White Quail while she was going to the University of Georgia. Today, we're going to talk pheasants. Today, we're going to talk quail. Today, we're going to talk prairie chickens breeding with sharp-tailed grouse and a hybrid prairie grouse coming out the other end. And we've got Habitat Talk and National Board of Directors Talk. We've got a full episode ready to roll. And uh, without further ado, um, Dr. Feligi, Susan, thank you very much for joining this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Uh, thanks for making time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, as we record this, April 20th, uh, Northern Minnesota is getting blasted with another snowstorm, <laughs> uh, and you live in Grand Forks, which is winter nine months out of the year as well. Yes. Uh, how much snow do you have on the ground in Grand Forks right now? About a foot. Um, yep. And we had gotten, what is it, 12 or 13 inches um, last week, and then another three or four inches for Easter um, and there was some blowing this morning coming down as I came to work. So winter persists here. Yeah. <laughs> well, the good news is uh, that that's going to help the drought situation and fill up some of those temporary and seasonal wetlands for uh, duck production this spring, isn't it? Yes, definitely. The moisture is desperately needed. Um, a lot of the farmers are happy to see that. Ranchers are happy to see that. And certainly uh, the wildlife world, we're definitely happy to see some water does make studying some of these birds in this time of the year a little bit challenging, but, um, but we'll take the water. <laughs> um, I, so your story, if I recall correctly, starts in the state of Pennsylvania. Is that right? That is correct. So, is so correct. take us uh, from growing up in Pennsylvania and give us an introduction to yourself, your kind of your background, where you grew up, um, what you, uh, thought about when you picked your your college and what you studied and a little bit about your career path. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised in western Pennsylvania in a town called Mercer. It's halfway between Erie, PA and Pittsburgh, PA, which most people can usually at least find those on a map. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, very early on, I was in a family where my dad and grandfather did a lot of hunting. So I was exposed to the outdoors. We didn't have a lot of neighbors. They were a mile or two away. So, you know, I had just my sister and I and typically our family dogs to roll out the door and, you know, play outside. And um, I always loved that. Um, my, my dad, um, he was a very uh, avid outdoorsman. He also worked uh, part-time as a deputy conservation officer for the Ooh. Pennsylvania Game Commission. Um, so very much that conservation um, blood, so to speak, I, I had a chance to inherit that. Um, mom was a teacher and a little less enthusiastic about the outdoors, comparatively speaking, um, though I would say that my my dad, my sister and I are all a little more on the extreme end of that. Um, so so perhaps that that isn't a fair justification there. But um, yeah, so very early on, I was very much taken out and seeing a lot of wildlife. Uh, dad was always bringing back game and hunting. Um, he thought he got two daughters and he thought, wow, they're going to be super expensive. They're going to want to go shopping with mom. And what's that going to cost me? Well, didn't take him long to realize we were way, way, way more expensive than, than he thought. Um, each of us wanted our own Benelli shotguns. Um, <laughs> my sister got a lab. I ended up with a Chesapeake Bay retriever, uh, quad parkers, parkas for, you know, going out into the duck marsh. Cause my dad was a pretty avid waterfowler. So we of course needed the right gear for that two trips to Saskatchewan and we'll just say a few shots were fired there. Um, and he realized, yeah, yeah, he had two very, very expensive daughters. Um, but, uh, I mean, I got to be outside my sister was two years older than me. So my, um, experiences were when hunt with hunting were, uh, largely started on just tagging along. Um, in Pennsylvania, you have to be, I think this is still the case too. You have to be 12 years old to be able to hunt. And so my sister being a couple years older, she was able to hunt, but I was only allowed to, to tag along. And let me tell you, I was not going to be left behind. Hmm. So I, I learned a lot about the hunting tradition more as a spectator. Um, and I have a really probably different maturation process, if you would, of going through that hunting cycle, because I, I rapidly got to stages where the sunrise was great. Being hmm. out there was great. And, and it wasn't necessarily the harvest as much. Um, but it was exciting when I finally could carry a gun. So, um, yeah, but very much rich tradition of hunting in my family. Um, and so that, that was kind of my, my first start and love of, of the outdoors. Uh, my dad having connections to the game commission, um, also was able to find that, um, he could take us out duck banding. And so I got to go to a place about 30 minutes North of my house where they did a lot of duck banding. And I, I remember I was 13 years old. I put a duck band on a, on a duck. Um, it was a bunch of mallards we were banding and I came home. I kept a hunting journal about all of our trips and stuff. And I wrote, I want to, I want to be a waterfowl biologist when I grow up and I, I want to be in the wildlife world. Like you can do this and get paid. Mm. And so I was pretty committed to that in a very, very early time frame of life. And I don't think I've ever wavered in that maybe a little towards people encouraging me, Oh, you could go be a veterinarian that works with animals but anytime I explored options like that, it was just, it was not for me. I, I wanted to be doing something for conservation. So I, um, I did a lot of volunteering with the Game Commission as a high schooler and then had the chance, obviously, to go off to college um, as a small town girl who, you know, was very country living. The big universities, I went to several, looked, they were not for me. Hmm. Um, and so I found, I found a really comfortable place at Penn State um, Erie 
um, or Penn State Barron. So it's the second largest Penn State campus. Um, it's predominantly an undergraduate institution, but there was a lot of chances to do undergrad research. Um, th there was about four or 5,000 students. So it was a little more of a manageable step, you know, um, to go. And I, I loved it. It was great. I got a lot of hands-on experience studying nesting birds with my professors, um, did a little bit of songbird work. I got to finally work for the game commission, um, as an employee because I was old enough to drive vehicles. <laughs> so I spent my summers with the migratory bird, um, team banding ducks, geese, doing, I did upland bird or upland, uh, sandpiper surveys. I got to web tag goslings, band doves. Um, and so it was, it was fantastic. Uh, as I approached kind of the, the near end, well, at that point I should also add, I, I met, uh, I met my husband, Chris, um, as actually it was in my freshman year. Um, I met him and he was also a very avid outdoorsman. Um, and he was always concerned, all the other girlfriends, that when hunting season came, he seemed to be single again. Um, <laughs> well, with me, that was a little different in that um, I wanted to hunt, but I was a bird hunter. Hmm. He, he'd never hunted birds. Um, he was an archery hunter to his core. So through undergrad, we swapped bad habits, as we say, because they consume our life quite a bit. Um, and I started to learn a lot more while I'd done a little bit of deer hunting. I'd consider myself the first day deer hunter with, uh, you know, my gun tag in Pennsylvania. And that was about it. It was back to birds as soon as I could get there. Um, I started to learn a lot more about archery hunting and grew a passion for that. And I taught him a lot about wing shooting, um, which posed to be also very interesting experiences for both of us. Um, as I was finishing up my undergrad, I knew I needed graduate school to really be successful in the profession. Hmm. There was no interest in academia at that point. I was headed on a state agency. I was going to be a not-for-profit biologist of some type, like a Ducks Unlimited, whatever, something like that. Um, at the time, I wasn't really aware of because Pheasant Forever or anything like that. But I was um, super interested in that sort of, um, you know, just being a hardcore biologist. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, had the opportunity, I interviewed at a few places, and there was a chance to go work on a project um, down at Tall Timbers with University of Georgia um, on bobwhite quail and nest predation. And there were some issues where um, people were really frustrated with predators um, consuming a lot of eggs and, you know, what would that mean? And so there was an interest in understanding what predator reductions like of middle-sized mammals, raccoons, skunks, fox, coyotes, those type things um, what would that would do for quail populations? And so I had the chance to go. I started as a master's student, but it, the project was large, cumbersome. And because I had a lot of prior research experience, they let me bypass my master's and go straight for a PhD. Hmm. And so that was kind of a, a unique path. Um, yeah. It's not a path commonly done, but it is done um, by, by some people. And so I went straight for a PhD and still thinking I'm headed to be a research scientist somewhere um, until I got a chance to do some teaching at the tail end of my PhD and and started realizing, you know, to have an impact on conservation, that can look like a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And it was my last year as a as a PhD student where I decided, you know, maybe this academic thing could have some some interest. And as I was getting to the end of it, they there was an opportunity to teach at the University of Georgia as a, a temporary professor. Um, they had somebody who had just left and they were trying to hire a position. They had another um, faculty member, my advisor, actually, who was on a sabbatical to go do something abroad. And so I could teach the courses and gain some experience. And in that year, I didn't make a lot of money, but I sure did some soul searching about where I was headed and um, and found that maybe academics and being able to train the next generation of professionals was was more more my speed. Mm. Um, 
and then came this job in North Dakota. And ever since I was little, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Montana had a ton of appeal. I mean, prairie pothole region, great upland birds, great waterfowl. I mean, it's it's a good place to be if you're a bird bird person. Um, and so I had the chance for a dream job and somehow I managed to get it as a really early, you know, career professional. And, um, and so I started the, in 2011 here at the University of, of North Dakota. Um, I, here at UND, I'm, uh, I'm our faculty lead for our fisheries and wildlife program. Um, part of my job is teaching. So I teach things like wildlife management techniques in, in um, population assessments. So how do you go out and study birds or uh, mammals or anything wildlife? Um, and then other things like ornithology, I teach that. I also research stuff. Um, mm-hmm. My biggest interest, obviously, is game birds, and we'll talk more about that. Um, and then I try to do a lot of applied things. So sometimes I've done work on things like piping plovers, or at least turns, and management of water on like the Missouri River and how you make assessments of birds there. So I've done dappled in a lot of things, wind energy, gas and oil, and that's impl- implications on birds. Um, and then I have another part of it that's sort of service related things. And that's things like I, um, I advise our student chapter of a professional organization called the wildlife society. So mm. I wear a lot of hats, but I have a lot of fun and sometimes it's hard to see where my start, my job starts and ends. Yeah. The fascinating story. And I've got a couple questions that have yeah. popped in my head along the way. So your sister, who is a couple years older than you and super um, interested in hunting. Is she still engaged uh, as a hunter? What does she do for a living these days? Yeah. So she's still back in Pennsylvania um, and, and works um, more in sort of a manufacturing side of things um, with uh, a company that, that does ice cream cones. And so she can run machines, build machines. She's very mechanically inclined on a lot mm. of things, um, but she is definitely still an outdoors, um, an outdoors person as well. Um, she, uh, she hunts, she fishes, she does all of that. Um, I've probably taken it a little more extreme than she has. Uh, she does a little more fishing than I do, at least open water fishing. Mm. Let's put it that way. I tend to do a little more ice fishing. Um, I'm sure that might come as a surprise by where I live, but, (laughs) um, but yeah, so she's still definitely a hunter and, and, and very much in the, in the, um, outdoors. Cool. And and you talked about, um, you know, one of the appealing pieces to being a professor or in education is being able to influence um, sort of the next generation of wildlife professionals and biologists. And I could see the smile on your face as you talk about that. And I can see that super gratifying component of it. For sure. You also mentioned, I think it was before we actually hit recording, uh, hit record that academia isn't always, not a lot of people in your profession are outdoors people, hunters, anglers, how big of an influence does the hunting piece have in your role as a professor? For a program in fisheries and wildlife, it's a huge thing. Um, you know, in, in some ways I, so I'm, I'm in a very hook and bullet state, mm-hmm. you know, North Dakota, the culture, you, we haven't seen the steep declines in, you know, in the hunting side of it because it's a part of the culture here. Um, and so it makes me actually very accessible and maybe relatable to the students mm-hmm. because, you know, I remember I came here and I interviewed and someone was like, Oh, make sure you don't schedule a test on the opening day of deer season or duck season. And I'm like, well, why would I, I'm not going to be here either. <laughs> you know, like I didn't outwardly say that, but certainly I was thinking it like, 
you know, I knew that, but it came as such a surprise to my colleagues, mm. you know, and, and so I think it's a piece of it is really important um, to have that rich history because, you know, hunting and fishing is such a core part of the North American model mm-hmm. when we manage wildlife. It's also such a core part of the students I teach here from this region. You know, it, it's a part of their culture. They've grown up doing this, you know, and so that's that's a helpful thing to be able to, to relate with them. Mm. Um, but we also now are having an increasing number, as many people know, that don't hunt. And I, I think I'm a person who can, I mean, we've done some um, mentored hunt stuff with Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever has participated in um, North Dakota Game and Fish to help us introduce students, college students who are particularly majoring in fish and wildlife to hunting that haven't had that experience, you know? And so that's something I'm excited about. We, we have some really great donors and alumni who have created a game management scholarship here, you know, and to be able to be a faculty member who understands what that means to those folks is, yeah. is also important for our program. Yeah, right. On. So, so you started, I think you said in 2011 at UNB. Correct. So has there been a change over time in the number of students that have asked you or had an interest in hunting? I, th- I think about what we've been going through the last couple of years with the pandemic. Did you have more students, you know, in the last couple of years saying, Dr. Feligi, how do I get involved in this? How do I, how do I take up hunting? Or is, or is that more not happening at that age level like it is in some of the other facets of society? Yeah. So this hunting thing, it actually goes back to my roots back in, in Georgia. I'll even go back that far. When I taught that year in, I, I had this student who walked up to me in my wildlife techniques class and said, you know, you keep bringing up this hunting thing and it seems to be an important part of what we do, but I don't know anything about it. And she said, how can I defend it if I've never done it? Hmm. How can I speak to it if I don't know what it's all about? And I said, great point. And so I had two of students that actually did this that came up and um, I took one of them. My husband took the other one and we helped them get their first deer in Georgia. And and I, I realized, wow, that's that is really important. Mm. Here in North Dakota, I didn't immediately find that students were maybe asking that question my first couple of years here. Um, but I also say my demographic has changed in, in North Dakota quite a bit. Hmm. Um, we are becoming a little bit more female driven in terms of our, our undergraduate program. I think when I arrived here, 20% of my students were female. Now we're more like 50%. Um, I also have uh, some different kinds of students. Like I have a couple Norwegian students right now in our, our fish and wildlife program. And one of those joined our, our mentored hunt this year and got on her first hunt. And she's like, I've never had a chance to really do that. I hmm. fish a lot from Norway, but hunting was not something I got exposed to. Um, and so I think as, as the demographic of um, the profession changes, you're going to see people coming from less of those experiences. And I've gotten more of those inquiries, you know, and so they appreciate this. And so I worked with Ducks Unlimited um, probably about five years ago, I guess we started our mentored hunt program and we asked Game and Fish to help. And there was uh, Kayla Bendel that was with Pheasants Forever at the time. She's now with Game and Fish. Uh, she's like, oh, I'll help too. No problem. And so, you know, we did our first round of it and um, it was very successful. We only, you know, managed a, about, I think, eight students the first time around or so, mm. maybe it was 10. Um, and that's, we kind of have kept it fairly small, um, but it's been highly successful. And, so. you know, we talked about some of the students that um, 
you know, you're teaching and then they go on and stay in the profession. I, so a two-part question. One thing you'll get to know about me is I have really long-winded questions sometimes. <laughs> so <That's> great. <laughs> so uh, first part, I know you, there's a few Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever uh, biologists, employees that work for us now that were students um, of yours. So first part is that I want to give you an opportunity to throw a shout out to a couple of uh, folks that I, I know that work for us now. Uh, but then I also, I'm curious about um, if you have any sort of tracking of the students that you've had uh, with that, like percentage wise are in sort of the wildlife industry, whether with state agencies, the federal government, nonprofits, do you have any sort of idea of like, they went to school for this and we have X percent that are actually, that's that's their career. Yeah, I don't have stats off the top of my head on that one. I'll, I'll answer maybe your second question. We'll circle back around sure. to a few things there. But um, relative to the, the second part of it, I don't actually have the stats on how many have become professionals in, you know, but I've seen them, a lot of them go on. Um, I do have a map in my office, which it might be a little hard and I'm afraid to unplug things right now. Um, but in my office, uh, I put pins in my, um, in a map. And one of our alum actually suggested that when I said that I didn't come to academia, like a lot of people do that were research centric, I came to it to have a difference on conservation. And so I have a map in my office for students who have done like a lot of undergraduate research with me, who have, um, you know, been really impactful at the undergraduate level, as well as my grad students. And I put a pin where they end up and land in there, as well as pins where my my teams have gone and done research. Um, and some of those now are up into like Churchill, Manitoba, oh, you know, wow. all the way down to stuff, yeah, to the south. And so we've done some really cool things. And so that I, I, I do have sort of a feel for. I'm, I'm certainly having um, those students go out and impact, uh, like, for example, the, the pheasant um, biologist for the state of North Dakota is a um, is one of my grad students, RJ Girls. And oh. so, you know, I've got students that are doing that. I have a lot that work for like soil conservation districts. And, um, you know, and then I found out recently some of my ones from Georgia, Abby, um, I think it's Peru, if I remember her last name correctly, just reached out and said she's working for Pheasants Forever in, in um, Ohio. Um, I have someone that I overlapped with in grad school, um, Jess Gonyer that um, works for, you know, on the quail side of things mm. down. Um, she, you know, she's another one that we overlapped and now she's with Pheasants Forever. Oh, Jess McGuire. Yes, McGuire. Now that's yep. it. Yep. She yep. was a different name then. Yeah. Uh, McGuire. Yeah, thanks. And so like yep. I got to see her at Pheasant Fest, which was awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's not just students. It's also sure. those that I feel like I've been trained together with that have been really fantastic as well. Um, and so, yeah. It, it's fun to see. I have a different role, I feel like, in, in interactions with folks within the profession than, like, say, some of the other board members. Sure. Um, because some of them are my students, some of them are my colleagues. So that's kind of neat. And, and if I'm recalling correctly, um, Anne Marie uh, Kriptovich, who works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you Correct. Past with. And she's yeah. been on this podcast for Pollinator Week. And then yeah. uh, Becca Clute. Uh, yes, who was over on Rooster in, Road Trip a couple years ago. Yep, in Minnesota. She was one of my graduate students, did um, actually some sharp tail grouse work out in the uh, oil patch. Yep. So there's, yep, I've got students that I, you know, I'm, I'm not even tracking all of where they're at. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting from that standpoint. But yeah, um, Becca's actually come back and spoke to my class about opportunities and in, um, in my intro to fish and wildlife about uh, what it means to be employed by Pheasants Forever. So um, yeah. It's been fantastic. It's like um, 
like a Super Bowl winning coach's tree, right? You got all these uh, tributaries running off of uh, the influence, which is kind of the point, right? What you wanted to, and I think it's it's really nice for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members to hear kind of the connections of your passion for hunting. It's clear you have a passion for bird hunting, duck hunting, and yet, you know, at the same time, your your professor you know, passing on that connection, the value of our hunting heritage and seeing the natural world through the lens of conservation and, and the lens of a hunter. Um, that's really, I think, gratifying and, and sort of, um, I don't know, it feels good for from a member's perspective to see that and then also to know that your voice on the board of directors too, which we'll get to in a moment. So I'm going to transition... Yeah. Um, you, you touched on tall timbers a little bit and, right. uh, you know, when folks come into the podcast and see the title university of North Dakota's Dr. Susan Feligi, they're going to think, well, another, another pheasant person on, on the board of directors. And the reality is you, you probably have more experience on the quail side than on the pheasant side. You got a ton of experience in waterfall and prairie grouse, but you also have um, a lot of background from working through the University of Georgia and Tall Timbers Research Station, um, working on quail research. And you talked a little bit, you teased it about the interaction between Bob Whites and, and predation. Was that the focus of your research while you were at Tall Timbers? Yeah, yeah. So I spent about five years, I'd say, um, focused on quail, you know, and maybe even a little more than that, because some of the, the work I collected, I ended up continuing to publish as I came here in, um, in, in to North Dakota. But yeah, my work actually was focused on using nest cameras. So we put cameras at over 740 bobwhite nests um, over, it was actually a seven year period. So there was some master students before me who started a little bit of it for identifying predators and figuring out who they were. Um, and then I kind of came in and um, picked up on that and then expanded it to um, some nesting ecology as well. Um, but one of the major questions that was driving a lot of the work was trying to understand, you know, the whole relationship between nest predation and, and these predators on the landscape. You know, there's a huge push in many places where people want to remove or reduce predators because it seems like, well, obviously, if we do that, everything's going to be great and birds will be flying mm. every which way. Right. Mm. Um, but, but fundamentally there's some, some challenges to what that looks like, and it depends on how you look at predators. So for what we looked at, um, as we reduced these meso mammal predators, and again, those are things like raccoons, armadillo, fox, bobcat, and, and we did this, yeah, skunk. And we did this over, you know, it was actually six years and there was a whole flip design to it and whatnot, but there was over 5,000 animals that were removed and actually studied on the predator side, hmm. um, on some cool reproductive ecology and other things. But um, what we found was, well, if you take out that part of the equation in complex ecosystems like the Southeast, there's a bunch of other predators. And so snakes are a really big thing. We don't tend to think about them, but a lot of our predation ended up being as you removed the, the meso mammals or reduced them, I guess is a better description. You start to see increases in things like snakes. Hmm. Um, you also, if the, the eggs were allowed to persist longer on the landscape, we had things like fire ants that would um, actually destroy the nest right as the eggs were hatching which is kind of a, a suboptimal time because now a bird has invested, you know, time to lay 12, 15 eggs, you know, at about an egg a day. She's now done, you know, 20 some days of incubation. We're about to have a hatch and she loses them. 
that's a big investment, which doesn't make it easy to re-nest. Now, you have a really long season in the Southeast where you can have two, three, sometimes even four clutches. But if you spend a lot of it on one and then it fails, you know, that's that's not a not a good ideal scenario. Hmm. Um, and so there were some weird compensation type things that we were actually seeing um, on that. We also found that just about anything that comes across eggs, we'll eat them. Sure. Um, you know, we had some unique things like we watched white-tailed deer and everyone's like, oh, suddenly deer are huge predators. No, they're not. It only happens every once in a while. But, you know, if you think about this power-packed energy thing that is called an egg, it's full of lots of good stuff. And so hmm. anything that comes past it, we'll eat it. And we've seen it with duck eggs as well um, here in North Dakota. You know, if a deer comes past it, They'll, they'll go ahead and sample some eggs. So weird things like that we got to see because we use cameras. Um, and then we also studied things like behaviors. So um, how do birds spend their time when they're sitting there on the nest? How many times do they leave the nest? Because the more active they are, the more likely they are to draw predators in that can see them. So questions like that, if, a, if birds are not in good body condition and they have to leave a lot to go eat, mm-hmm. so that trade-off between the nest and their own mommy time, as Becca used to call it, um, <laughs> with her grouse work, um, that trade-off um, you know, is really dependent upon body condition of birds and what, what they go into, into a breeding season. So if they have to leave a lot, they can draw predators in. So we looked at all kinds of things like that. Was habitat, like quality and quantity of habitat, a component of the interaction you were studying or was it purely predator prey relationships? Most of it was geared towards more straight predator prey, but I did do a section on of it on sort of landscape features. I wanted to understand, you know, where on the landscape were nests most successful? Was it close to certain things like waters, edges in general, mm-hmm. the size of the, the quality of that habitat? If you've got good habitat, how big are those blocks? And so I looked at things like composition and factors like that and then said, you know, does that impact who actually eats the nest? Mm. Um, and we found some subtle things. Um, but I was operating in really high end quality habitat, yeah, you know, tall, timbers. tall timbers, you know, I was working in another pine bloom plantation, which is up in like, um, Oh, Albany area for Georgia. That's high end. Like, you know, you have plantation next to plantation and they've been managing intensely for years. And so I think some of those things were not as apparent because it was such great quality habitat. Yeah. Yeah. You start projecting some of your learnings and it changes, right? When, when you think about like, okay, the best available habitat is ditches or roadsides. And then you're, it's linear cover and it's a heck of a lot easier for predators to bounce around on a linear cover and find nests and predate and versus tall timbers, which is sort of a utopic situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I got to, I got to work in the premier areas. And so I think that makes a big difference compared to when you work in other areas that are, you know, marginal habitat. Um, And, you know, at at one point you'd kind of, we had discussed questions about, you know, what do you learn from some of this predator prey? Well, one of the most important things, quality habitat, there is nothing better than Mm. that. You know, you get short-term fixes maybe when you reduce some predators. When you have marginal habitat, you might get a little better gains by doing that, but nothing replaces high quality habitat and a large amount of it so that you don't have those small, small areas and edges that a lot of predators use. That is one thing that a lot of work shows um, when you look at predator and prey is working on edges translates to animals that typically they follow right along it. And if there's not a lot there along those edges to where the birds are right on the edge, they're going to find them, Mm. you know, and then you also can think about other dynamics like, um, you know, if there's not enough quality habitat there, these birds are going to have to go out of that cover for forage. And if they're doing that, 
that back and forth makes them vulnerable to predation, thermal issues here in North Dakota, thermal issues even in Georgia, but it's the other end of the spectrum. Right. You know, hot is a big deal there. You, you know, compared to here where cold is much more <laughs> of a big deal. Well, you, you talk about the dynamics and, and it is interesting. I think about conversations I've had with biologists related to predators focused on the pheasant range. And I'm thinking particularly about there's this general public view from a pheasant hunter's perspective that coyotes are public mm. enemy number one. But when you dive into this, coyotes actually eat a lot more fur, like rabbits, mice, things like that. And when you remove coyotes from habitat or an area, or at least decrease their numbers, fox actually move in. And the reality is fox focus on feathers, pheasants or other birds. So when when some of these areas have these massive coyote shoots, quote unquote shoots or hunts, in the name of pheasants, they're actually creating the reverse of what they want to have happen because he remove a bunch of coyotes, the fox come in and the fox actually will focus more on pheasant populations. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not really coyotes or fox. It's who's eating the nests, right? It's skunks, yeah. it's weasels, it's it's possums, it's other things. So it's it, it, we, we sort of are a, um, a visual society, right? And it's the biggest predator, you know, the coyote. That's the problem. Right. But that's not always the reality, right? No, and I mean, very few of our cameras ever show coyotes actually eating nests. Um, foxes, you know, we where we have a lot of coyotes, we don't see many foxes. Um, but foxes also are really good at getting hens, mm. you know, and, and that's a big deal. I mean, it's one thing if they eat the eggs. It's another when you lose mama because mm. there's no second nest in that case, right? Um, so that has some some definitely unintended consequences there. And I, I think, I mean, the complexity of this, yeah. that, that's something that um, is unbelievable. And there, there's other elements of it, like the prey sources. And I don't know if you've chatted with um, James or some of the others, Mark McConnell, that might have brought this up. But Tall Timbers was also doing a lot of work with like cotton rats mm -hmm. and trying to understand the rats. And they're an alternative prey. And I mean, but they're easier. They don't have wings to fly away like a quail. Right. So if you've got a lot of those on the landscape, you have chances for those quail to have higher survival because, you know, you can catch something easier. And so, you know, everything from the, the coyote question, yeah, you, you might be doing more damage on one hand there. And even the small mammals, it's good to have lots of small mammals out there on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you will see them in. People get worried about them eating some of the eggs. Most small um, rodents like that might eat an egg, but they're not destroying entire clutches typically. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so they're actually some of our friends on that landscape to be something else for the, 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 the predators to eat and let the birds have a little break. So to speak. which is why, you know, circle back to the foundation of our organization, habitat, 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 good quality habitat is going to mitigate any of the pred predators response to bird numbers. And not only is it going to create, um, habitat for pheasants or for quail is going to create opportunities for pollinators, cleaner waters, right? It's, it's just, it starts yep. to be clearer as to why we double down on habitat, 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 as opposed to some of these other complex dynamic relationships that um, there's more than meets the eye to approaching it. 
Yeah, and it's tough because, I mean, you want to do something. You know, a lot of these people, they want to do something. And sometimes Habitat takes a little more time. You know, yeah. it, it's an investment and it's um, it's a progress and work to get there. Whereas, you know, if you reduce some of these predators, you feel like you've done this immediate thing. Um, but, it, but it's not always a long-term solution and sometimes can you know, have unintended consequences for sure. So let's bounce from quail in, in Georgia all the way to your your current state, North Dakota, and talk prairie grouse. And you're doing research right now, and, and your students are, on the relationship between habitat and sharp-tailed grouse, habitat and greater prairie chickens, and the interaction between those two species. So kind of set us up and, and tell us what you're studying and what you're learning on, on that research. Yeah, so let me give you a little back-end story here that it was about 2019 when North Dakota Game and Fish had been doing for a long time some regular monitoring of um, sharp-tailed grouse and prairie chickens here in eastern North Dakota. Um, and they needed someone to sort of take over these blocks to um, re regularly check them in the spring when birds are on the lex. So they're, you got chickens booming, you got sharp tails dancing. It's a pretty cool thing to see. Um, and so I said, well, hey, this is a great chance for undergrads to get some experience. There wasn't a hardcore research question. It was more straight monitoring. And so I was like, I'm game. Bring me on here to, to do this. And I guess put me in coach if that makes sense. And I've got a team to go. Um, and uh, and so we got an opportunity of something set up where um, each spring I, we go and visit these historic leks as well as just cover the block where we, we listen to say, okay, where are all the leks at for both sharp tails and, and prairie chickens? Um, and a little backstory on prairie chickens. Um, they weren't actually originally in North Dakota. Hmm. They made their way into North Dakota as small ag kind of started to boom in um, probably what, late 1800s-ish. Um, and they, they did quite well as agriculture sort of moved across the state when it was small ag. So they come at one point, from Minnesota, from the east? Yeah, mis, mis, yep, from the east. Um, and so um, so they they found that they, you know, worked their way into the state of North Dakota. They did fairly well for um, a number of years and even crossed probably two-thirds of the state, I believe it was, at one point. Mm. They were even into the mixed grass. Um, but... As the landscape changed, agriculture became a little bigger, and there there are species that's very sensitive to having like lots lots of of grass with small agriculture kind of mixed in there. If that makes sense, mm -hmm. so there's a good synergy with ag. Um, but as that sort of changed that dynamic, we saw them just restricted to the 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 Red River Valley, which is his it's a tall grass prairie ecosystem. Um, and so they were here in Grand Forks County, and then south in the Cheyenne grasslands. So it's very South um, Eastern North Dakota. Um, there's another little small, small holding of them right now. And so we were getting to watch these ones that are in Grand Forks County here, right? Literally in our backyard. Some of them, I, I just have to go a mile past my house and I'm, I'm to the Lex. Mm. It's pretty cool. Um, and so we started monitoring them and what we were finding is, um, you know, well, actually, let me back up one more step. We actually brought in birds for a while when they started to decline. The game and fish, I say we, that's a very collective we, the North Dakota um, side of things, brought in birds. And I don't recall the sources of those birds, but they brought birds in and at one point translocated a whole bunch of them right in my Grand Forks block here. And it was really successful. Um, this would have been in the, the 90s um, because they had dwindled real low and they're like, okay, if we're going to save them, we got to bring some blood, new blood in, mm. try to help these populations out. 
And around 2005, they peaked out. There were more than 320 booing males in the county. Pretty awesome. Um, you know, a lot of prairie chickens. There were sharp tails, but not a lot of them. They were not. The sharp tails tended to be more in the mixed grass. So as you went farther west in the state. Um, and then again, they dwindled off. And we've been on that decline of dwindling. As the dwindling has occurred, we've seen increases in sharp tails. Um, we've seen changes as well in the landscape in the sense that we've been in a fairly wet cycle since the 90s. Hmm. So if you go out, there's historic points I've walked to and I'm standing in the middle of cattails. And you kind of go, I don't think they're booming in this like two, three inches of water. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these cattails that are four feet tall. Um, we've also seen, as people have put a lot of Russian olive was a common thing. People put in, you know, for tree lines, shrubs and stuff like that. And at one point we as wildlifers thought it was a pretty good thing. And it can provide some wildlife habitat, but it also can be very invasive. And so now a lot of our blocks have a lot of Russian olive in them. And, you know, as soon as a tree pops up, I've seen where there's literally a, a booming, historic booming site. You'll go there. There's one little tree. There's no no chickens to be found. You go several hundred yards, maybe, maybe you know, quarter of a mile to, to a half mile. And suddenly it's wide open grass and there's your chickens again. Mm. Um, that being said, we're very wet because we're in the Red River Valley. So um, some years I tease, they probably need their life vests because we flood a lot. Um, so they're in really wet prairie is where they are booming. Um, but they really do want that open grass and less shrub cover. Sharp tails, on the other hand, seem to be tolerant of some level of shrubs. Obviously, they're grassland dependent species. They need a lot of grass, but they will handle some of those shrubs. And so where we've seen increases in Russian olive, we've seen increases in sharp tails and decreases in hmm. the chickens. And we've started to see leks that were once booming grounds become booming and dancing grounds. Hmm. So now you have the opportunity for both of these species to be um, spending their springs together in the breeding season. And that's entered a new new phase of the hybrid. Um, sharp tails are very aggressive on the breeding grounds, very aggressive. Um, prairie chickens tend to be a little bit less aggressive. And so it seems like as prairie chickens have dwindled and the lack becomes more dominated by those sharp tails, sharp tails are getting maybe more of the, the breeding opportunities hmm. with, with prairie chickens. And there's just not as many males for the, the booming grounds. Um, and so, yeah, so we've got a lot of hybrids now. Um, it's been kind of interesting to see, kind of disappointing. Huh. So when I think about places where sharptails and chickens coexist, I think about the sandhills in Nebraska and Fort Pier grasslands and in South Dakota. Is uh is hybridization happen frequently in some of those places, or is what you're seeing in North Dakota somewhat unique? Um, it's not unique. Um, it's been documented in Wisconsin as well, um, historically. And then I don't remember explicitly if Nebraska is one of them, but I would assume that they are there. There is some hybridization. The thing is, when they have the chance to sort of be separated, they tend to be separated. Mm. But I think what we saw was as there were very few sharp tails initially, and then there started to be less chickens, you have leks, and you'll see this, we still have this today, you'll have them, um, the leks right next to each other. So these displaying grounds are really close, like 100 yards apart. Hmm. And then as the sharp tails get a more of a, a stronghold and the chickens continue to decline, suddenly now they get closer and closer together hmm. and they're now dancing and booming all together, you know, kind of side by side. Huh. Um, and so that's, you know, so I think they try to stay apart to some extent, but once the populations of where there's too few of one or the other, 
Well, they're like, well, these are grouse. There's something going on here. I'll just join this party. So as I think about, <laughs> and I'll try to describe them both visually for folks. So um, I think about a prairie chicken is a little more russet, darker colored, um, square tail, has a yellow, like sort of throaty, um, I don't know, it, it's sort of a skin. glowing, almost glowing orange skin, yeah, right? air sac, yeah. And then the Sharpie, as you, as it name indicates, sort of a pointed tail as opposed to the, the square brought off prairie chicken. A lot more white, particularly on the feet and the underbelly. The feet are covered in feathers, whereas the chicken is sort of white chicken-like feet. Um, so they, when they when they flush, it takes a little while to identify them on the wing, but you can. And when you hold them in your hands, they're pretty easy to identify. When you look at a hybrid, do they take on very specific? features of one or the other or is it uh choose your own adventure and you get a mixed bag of nuts no matter no matter what happens well it starts i think where you get a little bit of both in there hmm. sometimes you see the tail sometimes you'll get like so you'll have like a sharp tail but you'll still have the pinier or ear feathers okay. that come up on a, a chicken um and you might still see that orange air sac um, but then you might start getting more marbling of purple in it. Cause there's actually a little purple that would be in, you know, sharp tails have yeah. that. It's just not a glowing one. Like you see in, you know, things like we think about sage grouse and, um, and prairie chickens, the really glowing big sacks. Right. Mm. Um, and so you start to get some changes there. Um, and then you really can see it in the male males as they display. They're not sure whether to dance, to boom, to jump, to whatever. <laughs> um, and their sounds are different too. Mm. So it might look kind of like it's a prairie chicken, but its tail's a little bit funny, but, and it's pinier or ear feathers are a little shorter, mm. you know, but then when it makes the sound, it's, it's not as intense. Like if everyone's ever been on the, the booming grounds of a of prairie chicken, you can feel it mm -hmm. and you can hear it. It resonates a couple miles in good conditions. A hybrid doesn't do that. Mm. You know, it's more like a half mile kind of at best. It's not intense. It's, you know, a little almost squeaky in the sense that it's just <laughs> not quite there in that dynamic aspect. And so that's what some of the, the sounds actually pick us up a bit. And then as you're watching, you know, you're looking through the spotting scope, trying to count how many males are out on the breeding grounds. You're looking and there's someone that's just not got their moves right on the dance floor, mm. you know, and, and they really become stand out that way. Females are a lot harder to tell. Um, but you can start to see it in particular, you'll start to see barring on the tummy of a hmm. um, hybrid where the female should like, let's say it looks like it's mostly a sharp tail, but then her belly has the barring of a, of a prairie grouse. That's that darker um, colors and they're not real spotted. They're, they're much more barred. Hmm. Um, and then we think, um, and commonly a question, hybridization. So do the hybrids reproduce? Mm -hmm. Some suggestions are that, yes, it, it can happen. They do reproduce. Um, and when they do, you get really weird combinations at that point. Um, cause it's some of each stuff, uh, wow. you know, in terms of both, both species, um, there's not a lot known and really been done to unpack how much that, how often those, those breedings are successful, but it does appear that, that some of them are. Huh. It sounds as you're describing the male hybrids, I identified as like my puberty years, you know, it, yeah. <laughs> really awkward and, and uh, no dance moves to speak of either. <laughs> no, they don't know whether to dance and stomp their feet, put their wings out or whether they should be, you know, doing that little extend their <laughs> neck. And 
Um, yeah, and you'll see them do some of each and try to figure out what that looks like. Mm. And then their tail will be the wrong shape. And yeah, it's it can be entertaining. A little sad for them, though, too, at the same time. You feel a little embarrassed for them mm. at times. And you're like, that's not working, dude. Try, <laughs> so, try something else. So as you think about that project, is there... Is there a takeaway or a recommendation that you're offering the, the North Dakota Game and Fish relative to um, wild uh, population management or habitat management for, for these birds? I think the biggest thing is, you know, we've, we've got to have high quality grasslands for sure. Mm. And there's been a large push for removal of a lot more woody stuff. Eventually the woody stuff can be too much for sharp tails too. Mm. So either way, there needs to be some reduction in that woody vegetation. Um, the Audubon Dakota has actually put in for some, we have an outdoor heritage program here. It's different than Minnesota's, but you can, you can request some money. And I believe that they got some funding to try to put some management on the ground of areas like this for grassland birds more broadly to reduce some of that woody vegetation. So I know they've been partnering with a lot of the organizations, Fish and Wildlife Service and others to try to reduce the woody vegetation across the landscape. But a lot of it happens on private lands. And so that makes it sometimes more challenging about what you can do when, you know, probably 70% of that is on, on private yeah. lands that we're working on. So yeah. it, every um, biologist slash professor that um, I've had on the, the podcast, I asked this question about, you know, whether it's funding from a state agency or a foundation or just the university wants to do something. Um, what's that one project, research project that you haven't yet been able to tackle, but is kind of on your wish list of a, of a project that just one day you're going to get this done before you retire? You know, honestly, I'm not sure there's one. There's a whole suite of them I have, um, to be honest. But a lot of things here in North Dakota, there's a lot of basic nesting stuff we haven't done mm. in recent years. It's old. It's, you know, back from 50s, 60s. Technology's changed. The habitat has changed. And and I haven't yet gotten to actually do a pheasant project yet. Um, you know, you said stuff about at the beginning. My, my experience is actually more quail, more prairie grouse. Um, a lot of ducks as well. And, um, and so I really want to get into the pheasant world a little bit more in the sense of actually getting to do some hardcore research. And there's a lot of things here in North Dakota. We make a lot of assumptions about, um, pheasants on, you know, what's happening in South Dakota, sure. you know, and sometimes surrounding landscapes, because it is hard to find money to conduct actual research, you know, and the habitats changed across here. What, what does some of this look like, you know, over the years, how's it, how has it changed? Um, and how can we use new technology to maybe learn more than we knew in the first mm. place? And I think those are all directions I'd love to go with some of that. And I've been chatting with Game and Fish about, you know, is there's some Pittman Robinson or Wildlife Restoration Act money? You know, could we come up with some of those type opportunities to help even extend how their monitoring occurs to make it more um, more data rich for them? Mm. A lot of the stuff they do are these roadside surveys that are indices. Um, you know, and so you're based on trends. Is it up? Is it down? You know, what does that look like? And I think there's a lot more information than just those those trends that would be useful in making management decisions when it comes to habitat or, you know, other recommendations, harvest. I, I always think about before when I lived in when I grew up in Michigan, you sort of think about the Dakotas as this homogenized place. But then you spend some time in North Dakota or South Dakota and you realize the complexity of the ter terrain, the complexity of the, the weather, um, 
the habitat and, and not only from each, you know, South Dakota to North Dakota, which has dramatic differences in temperature and in snowfall. Um, East River, West River have dramatic differences um, east and west as the states go. Like Eastern South Dakota and Eastern North Dakota are more similar than their Western counterparts. Absolutely. It, it's actually, I always tell people, if you've only been to the Red River Valley, you're missing most of North Dakota mm-hmm. because it's a very small portion of what it is. This is historic tall grass prairie. You know, as you move west, you get into the rolling hills and the coteau of the mm-hmm. Missouri. So you get beautiful rolling hills, the potholes that we hear about in the prairie pothole region. Um, you know, a lot, lot of grass. It's mixed grass, so it's varying heights. You get cold and warm stuff, so it's blossoming at all kinds of times and greening up. And then you start to go west, you get to the short grass prairie, you know, and there's not as much cover, not as much precipitation. And even into the rugged badlands, you know, where you have really cool aspects of like the sharp tail hunting in the badlands area and that, that short grass prairie area is very different than what mm. you would do here on this side of the state. Birds act different, covers different, you know, um, your experience is really different. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And it, it, where my mind was going with that, as you talk about like the state agencies sort of make what's working in South Dakota, let's apply that to this state or that state. And it's like, well, even in the Dakotas, you know, that that's where you come in and can do some actual research science and study the interaction with uh, habitat and predators and population dynamics. And, you know, what's necessarily applicable in South Dakota isn't always necessarily applicable in North Dakota. Oh, very much agreed. Very much agreed. And even as we've watched these storm systems come across and how they've hit each of these different areas, you know, one might be getting rain, the other's getting snow. And that has huge implications on how animals are responding. You know, if that snow underneath that's ice as well, you know, your winter conditions suddenly made a really big difference. And that, that varies within the state, but also definitely across. Right. So I'm going to take us to your role on the board of directors but one other really quick question, because it's it's something that's coming over the transom of my inbox, you know, on an, a couple times a day now. It's like, what's, and we've all seen the news stories of avian influenza and the impact with poultry, domestic poultry, chickens, turkeys, and, you know, your, your background with waterfall, we, you know, that it's, it's absolutely having an impact on waterfall. Um, the question comes directed my way. What's the potential um, ramifications of avian influenza on pheasants and quail? Can you just give kind of a soundbite as to what our members should uh, be aware of or, or, or what they should know related to, to avian influenza? Yeah, and I'll, I'll preface it with, by no means am I a disease biologist of any type, or wildlife disease biologist or wildlife veterinarian, but, you know, we, we are seeing this avian influenza hitting, and it's it's definitely impacted the waterfowl world. Here in North Dakota, there's been many reports with snow geese as they were coming through as a major one. Um, and then certainly the domestic side, turkeys and, and chickens, as you mentioned, have been... Um, at the forefront of a lot of discussions. Um, and, and in those cases, they've been trying to be very proactive and removing, you know, those, all those individuals mm-hmm. at a lot of those farms. 
Um, and that's a way to try to help reduce that spread into wild populations. Um, I have not heard at this point, and, and I will say I'm not exactly in the loop on all of that. I've been hearing more a little bit from the waterfowl front, that there's anything going on necessarily in the upland populations, but there's definitely the potential of things to go from, you know, these domestic farms. I think the turkeys right now are probably a little bit more at the forefront of some things um, because some of the, the, the turkeys and their movement, their congregations as, as well at like different places, feedlots and stuff like that in the winter here, you know, they're still kind of congregated as they're starting to separate out with breeding grounds. But if we did get some interaction there, it could be imp imp definitely impactful on, on populations like that. But, you know, it depends. The biggest thing is it depends on what they, who gets exposed to mm -hmm. it. Where is that overlap? So if you've got some of these upland birds, you know, interacting where maybe there's some waterfowl, there could be some potential chances for it to, to spread there. And certainly the, the concern with poultry and turkey industry on the private side, you know, where those interactions happen, that's a big thing. But, you know, USDA has been very proactive trying to manage those. Um, and so I, I guess we'll see what happens. But, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, you want to be alert if you start seeing something, certainly work with your USDA wildlife um, veterinarians, your game and fish or department of natural resource departments so that they can check it out as quick as possible. Yeah. And it, some of the additional info that I've received from upland biologists from different state agencies is while it's, it's certainly of concern with waterfall and also with a predator um, like raptors, uh, eagles yep. and scavengers. Um, Absolutely. Um, the potential risk is, significantly less with upland birds, pheasants, and quail, just because they're dispersed and there's not a lot of congregation and interaction with some of the other birds that occur. I believe to date, there's not even a case of a songbird contracting it in the United States. So, yeah. so while we should all be aware of this, it's from a pheasant, quail, upland, prairie grouse, it's probably, um, you know, relatively low concern compared to some Absolutely. of the other things. I would, I would definitely agree. It's, it, there's other things like they mentioned the waterfowl where there's much more concerns right now and it's, it's having some impacts. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's round the corner to third base and talk about you're the, the newest member of our national board of directors for pheasants forever and quail forever. I believe you started January of this year. So that's correct. Um, about five months, give or take at this point. Um, still getting your feet wet for sure. But um, kind of give us your take on, you know, what what led you to be um, it's like, yeah, this is something I want to do. And sort of your perspective and your vision for your role. Yeah, um, I was I was actually kind of surprised when I got asked to be a part of the board. Um, I was having discussions with some folks about with with um, different leadership and state side of things here in North Dakota about Pheasants Forever and how could we get our students more involved, internships, having those dialogues. Turns out one of our alum, um, Marilyn Vetter, who's um, the vice chair of the, the board, was um, also, you know, I got a chance to interact with her. And the next thing I know, she suddenly, you know, sort of saying, you ever thought about a board of director's position or something? Not really. I was just thinking about internships right now, but <laughs> let, let's talk, you know, and I had a lot of things going on. And so we talked back and forth. It's been probably a, a year or a year and a half of some discussions when they sort of first 
sort of planted the seed, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And, you know, just would you have interest? What would that look like? You know, kind of thing. You know, do you even know about this? What do you want to know about the organization? And so I got great chances to talk with board members and, and learn from them. And wow, I really just, I found the board to be really dynamic. I got some chances with leadership. And of course, as, as most people know, Howard is um, a very, very dynamic individual. Um, and I, I saw his energy, his excitement, and um, he even came to my classroom and did a whole thing about, like, we had students develop what this National Grassland Act, if we were to create it, what would the, the students think and build that as we went through different mm -hmm. policies and programs, and, you know, and, and um, it, it was, it was quickly becoming apparent to me that um, this is an organization that I, I share a lot of real deep passions in terms of um, the mission. And it was an organization doing things in ways that I thought were very proactive um, and exciting. And, uh, and so, you know, they circled back with me and, and were like, so um, how about this board membership? Would, would you do it? And um, so I finally said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Um, you know, once I got to know everybody, I was pretty excited about that possibility. So I started officially in January. I got to do a, a little informal board gathering with folks in Kansas. And that was a great introduction to seeing some of the volunteers, meeting a few board members, uh, meeting some of the staff. And then, of course, I, I got the chance for the, the first in-person board meeting that had been happening in like years, I guess, from COVID aspects, you know, at, at Pheasant Fest and, and Quail Fest or Quail Classic. And Wow, was that cool. Um, I, I came back pretty invigorated from that experience. Um, it's, it's a great organization and I, I could feel the energy and the passion. And, you know, when I actually officially started on this board and there was that press release, several members of the staff and even a few volunteers like sent me these emails and it's like, welcome to the family, mm. you know, and, and it's true that what I saw at Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic, it's, it's a big family and that's pretty Yeah. Cool. And I believe I know we've had um, members of our national board of directors who have been biologists, um, professors in the past. Uh, Dr. Ken Higgins is a name that that comes to mind. Um, but at present, I believe you're you're the only professor research scientist. So you're filling that niche. What other niches do you do you see yourself filling? Um, from a perspective on the board of directors? Admittedly, I am still learning this because I'm just getting to know all of the many facets of uh, the board and the cool things that they all bring in terms of all the board members. But I think I'm kind of a unique combination. I'm, you know, I'm that academic, I'm a researcher, I'm an educator, I'm a lifelong hunter, you know, a real mix. I'm, I'm a mom. Um, you know, I didn't really get into my story on that side of things, but I have a four-year-old daughter who, you know, it, she doesn't really know anything but the outdoors. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's been ice fishing since she was six weeks old. She did her first turkey hunt at four months old. So, you know, it, there's there's some elements of being a, a, a mom who's got a young child, you know. And so those those are really um, key parts of, you know, of a dynamic that I, I think is a bit unique in that whole combination. Um, I think about science all the time in the fact of my, my day job here. And so I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how science can be used to think about state-of-the-art implementation of habitat management, where we at, how do we make science drive the decision-making mm. side of things. And so I think that's something that, you know, while some folks that are biologists are thinking about it, um, I'm 
coming at a perspective of that and then education. I mean, I'm super passionate about that. I'm passionate about how we not just train like and get people excited to be professionals because mm-hmm. there's some things that Pheasants Forever does and Quail Forever on that side, but it's how do we make citizens that are just excited to be passionate and and passionate about conservation? You know, and I, I get excited about that. I do. I, I know that not all my students, you asked about a proportion, not all of them are going to go off to be maybe professionals in the field, but I want them all to be, you know, folks who are passionate about conservation, whatever their career path. And so I think I bring some energy in that <laughs> arena that I, I care a lot about. That. I think that uh, been made abundantly clear over the last hour, you'd bring a lot of energy, a lot of passion. Um, our members, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members, Across the country should be super proud to have you on the board of directors representing their interests from such a diverse set of uh, perspectives. You know, whether that's, as you articulated, the science hat, the teacher hat, the female hat, the mom hat, the hunter. Um, You bring a, a wealth of both depth and breadth of perspective. And it's pretty exciting to have you on um the leadership of the organization. And I appreciate you spending so much time with me today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm, I'm really excited and honored to be a part of this, um, you know, this organization. It really excites me as I see like all the energy and the passion. And I mean, the staff and the volunteers have a no quit attitude. That's just awesome. You know, everybody doesn't see obstacles in front of them. They see, we got to find the next creative solution as we look at, you know, the future and, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to be a part of it. And I'm excited to learn from everybody. Mm. You know, um, I think there's a lot I can learn and I hope to bring it back to my students here at the university of North Dakota and say, Hey, you know, this is what, this is what the profession needs. Mm. Let's make sure you're prepared for it. Let's make sure you can hit the ground running. For that. So, so um, that's going to be my question related to closing thoughts, right? Like normally I just sort of lob it at what's your closing thought, but I, I'm thinking, okay, so you're approaching the end of the school year, the graduation time. What do you tell those students your last bit of advice when they leave the classroom and, and go off into their find a career? Is there a nugget you leave those students with? I think the biggest thing is don't lose your passion. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to keep at it. Um, the profession of conservation at times can be a little bit daunting, you know, and, and it can have its challenges and it can look like maybe we're at odds with a lot of things. But I think that um, when you look at, especially Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's approach, partnerships are key. So I tell them, be passionate and, and find allies, you know, find partnerships, be creative about those. Um, and, and I think you'll be able to accomplish a lot of great things by, by doing that. Um, and then come back and see me and let me know what you're up to from time to time. That's always a good thing too. So um, but no, I'm I'm so excited about all of this, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to to join you today, and you know, to get to be to be, get it to be a part of the the quail and and uh, pheasants forever family. Well, thank you so much for making time. I'm um, it, for folks that want to, you know, ask you about becoming a student at UND, or maybe there's a grant funder out there that wants to fund that next big project. You, you're super easy to find. Um, it, I- I hope so. Just um, as simple as um, Googling Susan, last name is spelled F-E-L-E-G-E, and University of North Dakota, and your phone number, your email, everything pops up there, and uh, people can 
find you and, and ask questions that uh, hopefully this this podcast is um, um, created as a catalyst in their minds. So again, I really appreciate you spending the time, Susan. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate how you having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. All right, folks, thank you for listening to uh, this episode of On The Wing Podcast. Um, I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.